Hello and welcome to EG's Office Politics. I'm Piers Weiner, and today I'm joined by a special guest, the outgoing chair of the Climate Change Committee, former Environment Secretary, former Estates Gazette columnist, Lord Deben, aka John Gunner. Welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you. you. The Climate Change Committee report that came out, this is your final report, isn't it? Your personal final report, progress report. Yes, yes, that's right. So you're now stepping down after 11 years. It was going to be 10, but that was extended. The comments that you made when you took on the role were that we needed a step change. We needed firm leadership, that the government needed to take hold of this. I think you said something about it doesn't matter if you believe in climate change or not. We just need the action and that there could be no growth that wasn't green growth. 11 years on, and your forward to the report and the letter that went with it, contains some fairly damning comments on where you think we've got to. Our confidence in the achievement of the UK's 2030 target and the fifth and sixth carbon budgets has markedly declined from last year. I urge government to find the courage to place climate change once again at the heart of its leadership. The true test of leadership is delivery. And here I am more worried. And then he said in your letter, our children will not forgive us if we leave them a world of withering heat and devastating storms where sea level rises and extreme temperatures force millions to move because their countries are no longer habitable. None of us can avoid our responsibility. Delay is not an option. It seems that delay is what we've had for a decade. Is that a fair assessment? No, I don't think that's a fair assessment. Um, there's no doubt that we have moved very significantly in the last 10 years. First of all, uh, by the agreement in Paris, when one has to accept that uh, we move much faster than anyone thought possible in signing the whole world up mm. uh, to fighting climate change, so that every country on earth has actually agreed to this. Now, of course, they won't reach what they say they're going to, and they'll be backsliding and the rest and we'll have to ratchet them up. But at least we now know what direction we're going in, which means that any businessman, anybody planning for the future, knows that they have to take this fundamentally into account. So it's a really crucial change. And then I think Glasgow uh, actually extended that because for the first time... With COP26. Yes, the COP26, because the advantage there was for the first time... Um, India and China accepted that they too had to make the changes because historically, of course, the poorer countries had uh, always suggested that because it was the rich countries that had benefited from, from the pollution which has caused climate change, that uh, we ought to be paying for it, making the changes, and that they really needed to, to do nothing. That has changed. Everyone knows that we're all in this together. And although it's absolutely true that the rich countries have to pay the big costs in the poorest countries, it's not going to be uh, without the poorest countries taking their part as well. And if you only look for the over the last month, we've had the Chinese uh, putting forward the biggest change in uh, uh, their electricity generation that has ever happened. A huge improvement in what they're doing on offshore wind, onshore wind and photovoltaics. And then I'd say, you know, we've got to remember America has never been in this really. Uh, 
various states and, and, and quite a number of cities, but not the nation as a whole. And the rather oddly named Inflation Reduction Act of, uh, of Joe Biden has actually totally changed that. And America is now the leading nation in the sense that it has got a structure which is encouraging all kinds of investment. And I was only listening to the number of different things that have happened over the last 10 months as a result of that. So there is no doubt about that. And the European Union, of course, has moved much faster. Terrible, sad change that we left the European Union because that was not only hugely damaging to ourselves, but it means that we're not part of the decision-making process in the world. And that has uh, put us back in a real sense. So uh, the world is in a much better place than it was, but we are still not delivering what needs to be done. And first of all, Britain, instead of being the leaders that we were at Glasgow, has slipped behind. We did set the standards. We did actually pull the world into a net zero consciousness. We were the first country to put net zero as a statutory requirement. We have done those things. What we haven't done and what we are not doing is the delivery. Yeah. So when it came to what I said uh, in my letter to the Prime Minister, and what we said as a report, what we were saying was that when the courts, because of course this is now a matter of law, so when the courts were asked uh, to press the government, uh, the courts actually said the government has got to produce a delivery plan. And when the government produced the delivery plan, 3,000 pages of it, uh, interestingly, for the first time without giving it to the Climate Change Committee in advance. So we were not able to comment on it at the beginning, but we did spend a great deal of time putting the best brains, both uh, economists and scientists, looking at this delivery plan. The more we looked at it, the more we realised that the government actually, when it put on paper what it thought it was going to do, was not going to reach where it had in law and by law uh, accepted that it would have to go and what it had put forward internationally as its uh, commitment, both for 2030 and 2035. So it was really the government's own uh, papers which showed that when you stripped away the hopes and the expectations and the thoughts and got down to the facts, you got to the stage in which the government was clearly for example, relying on technology that we didn't have and which we cannot rely on, not doing things which we manifestly have to do about land use, for example, about home heating, about all the things that need to be done for the grid if we are to be able to use the new uh, offshore and onshore technology. After all, it hasn't even changed the law about onshore wind. So if you are a community that wants to have a turbine, you can't have it because the system makes it almost impossible. And the government is still discussing the issue. I mean, it is a government very good on its aims and its legal requirements and just not delivering. 
That you spoke before about the global picture, which is, as you say, far more positive. That national picture. Do you feel that because of that delivery lag? Because we're not. It's not a technocratic thing, is it? You're not saying, well, they set themselves these targets and it hasn't met them. This is a ticking clock. We're getting much closer to 2030, which was acknowledged as the point when something had to be done. We're getting so much closer to that, and things haven't been done. While there have been steps forward in an international perspective, from a domestic perspective, have we taken those steps forward? Given the timeline, it feels like a step back. Well, I don't think it's a step back, but it is simply not a step forward. And I think that that becomes the more urgent, the more that one recognises that the scientists were right in what they said would happen, except that it is the top end of what they said would happen and not the middle or the bottom. And therefore what we have to recognise as we are seeing throughout the world at this very moment, what we have to recognise is that climate change is very, very serious indeed. And that what we need to do is to step up rather than not step, which is what we really have to do. And I, I do think that we really do have to remind people and certainly remind ministers of what's actually happening around the world. Um, and I was pleased to see the uh, Minister for Nuclear Power actually very clearly say to the Vice Chairman of the Deputy Chairman of the Conservative Party that he was just wrong in talking about, uh, you know, we can't go on chatting about uh, net zero, we you know this is too much of this. Uh, absolutely wrong. If you look around the world, you see why it is wrong. And that is a serious issue to have somebody so senior in the Conservative Party actually to think you can um, shrug it off. And there is too much of that, well, we know we have to do it, but not now, and it's all very difficult and already awkward. The fact of the matter is, Canada is ablaze. Uh, America has a third of its nation being under very clear threat from heat. Uh, Vermont is flooded. Uh, we have never seen temperatures of the level which we've seen in the south of, uh, of Europe. Uh, we look at um, Spain and uh, look even at France and certainly at Italy and Greece, countries which are now so hot as it is unbearable and unlivable. And if you go south of that, of course, you find right across Asia the same sort of problems and flooding at the same time, so that you really have a world where climate change is actually interrupting the normal course of life to a degree which is already disastrous. And we've only had 1.1 degree of warming over pre-industrial levels. And we're at the moment on course to something between two and a half and three. And if you think of that, then you begin to understand just how serious it is. What you just said there about the, um, the conversations in the at the top of the, the Conservative Party, at the top of government. It, it's very strongly reminiscent for me of going back to when you took up the post of chair of the, of the CCC, with you urging government at the time, please don't abandon the green agenda, don't abandon this thing that two years beforehand had handed the Conservatives control of government, or, you know, coalition. But 
it seems that we're, we're back there, aren't we? That we're having to urge government to, to stick to its commitments, to not say, oh, it's too difficult, let's park it. Well, I think one has to face that it is difficult. Uh, you only have to look at the situation, not of the government, but of the opposition. After all, we advise, the Climate Change Committee advises the whole of Parliament. It's yeah. a parliamentary committee and not a government committee. And uh, if you look at the opposition, very rightly, they have said that they would not give any more permissions for exploration or uh, exploitation of oil in the North Sea. Immediately, they were attacked by their two biggest uh, financial uh, operators, Unite and the GMB. Uh, both of them entirely wrong about it both of them entirely old-fashioned and backward, both of them trying to defend jobs which will go instead of moving to jobs which will be there for the future. Now, if the Labour Party in opposition finds itself in that position, you can understand why a government of all kinds uh, has to have the kind of pressure which uh, I and the Climate Change Committee and lots of other people have to press upon it. And you can understand too why uh, it is always easier in opposition to be green, particularly if you are not very definite about what you do. And so I really have a strong criticism too of the opposition, because it seems to me that you can only press the government if you are detailed in your arguments. You need to say on this issue, this is what we would do, and you aren't doing it, and we are pressing you to do it. Now, the opposition, I'm afraid, has not done that. This is the first time that we've really had the beginnings of the sort of opposition which we need. And we've got another 18 months of this government, whatever may happen after it, we may well have an 18 months of this government. And the idea that it's automatically better by having another government is not true. Mm. What you need to do is to have an opposition which puts itself into a position that were it to be the government, it was committed. And in the meantime, it really works on the government still true that the case for all sorts of things have not been pr properly pressed. What on earth have they been doing not forcing the government to stop wittering around about onshore wind and actually say, if a community wants onshore wind, we will encourage it and we will link it up and we will make it work. Why have we not got there? But partly because we have a government that's sort of boneheaded about this issue, but partly we've got an opposition which hasn't pressed it in the way which an effective opposition would. So I'm really campaigning, now that I'm no longer advising but campaigning, and what I'm doing is campaigning to say the whole political system has got to understand just how serious this is. And there is a very fundamental electoral reason why. The government and the opposition will be held to account when people realise what they failed to do. It's all very well saying at the moment we've had an awful lot about net zero and too much about it, as, uh, as has been said by uh, the Deputy Chairman of the Conservative Party. Yeah, that's all very well now, but when the storms 
strike, when the heat is intolerable, when the immigration becomes impossible to stop because people are moving in vast quantities across the gates and need to because there is nowhere at home for them to be because they are flooded or because the heat is intolerable, when that happens, the government and the opposition will be blamed, as happened in Germany. They had those terrible floods two or three years ago, if you remember, and for the first time, for the first time, you heard people locally saying, why has the government not done more about climate change? People now know why it's happening. They didn't, and then they didn't want to, and now they do know. And therefore, I think politically, it is a very, very short-sighted view of both the major parties not to get out there and win people's hearts and minds to do the things that we've got to do. This is part of the problem that politics gets in the way. Because you said about the opposition not coming with stronger attack lines, with stronger positions. But you've been in opposition that it's very difficult to do that, isn't it? Because you'll have your policies torn apart. Well, I'm not, well I, I'm, I'm sure that's true. I, I think, and there is, of course, the awful advice which these gurus give to parties that the less they promise, the less anybody knows about them, the more they merely say they'd be better than the people in charge, the more likely they are to be elected. That is part of the, the, the kind of the teaching of the so-called electoral experts. I personally don't think that's true any longer. I think people are, people in general have become so uh, dissatisfied with the political system that they are looking for leadership. And that's why, for example, the extreme right does well at the moment because the extreme right at least says something, at least says we have an answer. It's rubbish. I mean, the watching the extreme right in Spain, it, it busily saying that it will provide people with water. It hasn't got any water. The idea that it can do that. And there are the great uh, wild uh, park of the Doniana, which is uh, now suffering because of the water that people are taking out, which is why the Germans have now pressed Lidl and other companies not to buy the produce of that area simply because it's destroying the biodiversity in a very serious way. So uh, I'm not too sure that they've got the tone right. And I think politicians ought to listen also to just stop oil. Not because I approve of many of the things that they have done, but because they are saying something which is absolutely in the minds of the new generation. Because they know that we are, at the moment, leaving them with an intolerable, uninhabitable world. And they're looking fed up. They don't see why this should happen. And they don't, they're not prepared to accept the slowness of, of, of politicians. So I think that some of the changes in the tactics of the just stop oil are exactly what should be done. I don't believe, rather like the deputy chancellor of Germany, who is a Green member after all, uh, who said it isn't acceptable to stop traffic in a way which means that ambulances can't get to the ill and that sort. But it does seem to me perfectly reasonable to make sure that everybody watching Wimbledon knows that there is a real issue. 
it does seem to me perfectly acceptable that everybody who has the first night of the proms remembers that we're doing all these things in the context of climate disruption and destruction. And I'm pleased that they do it. You said that one of your many recommendations, I can't remember exactly how many recommendations the latest report makes, but it's it's in the hundreds, isn't it? Mm. One of them is that, that planning needs radical reform. We've been saying that for quite some time, haven't we? I mean, you, you were trying to radically reform planning when you were in charge of planning. <laughs> and it seems that everybody who's had your job or a version of your job ever since has been trying to do the same thing. That and many other recommendations that you've made, what's your confidence that any of those will be delivered? Well, I think there's a very real chance of, of, of the planning situation being changed simply because, for example, you can't deliver the changes in the grid which are so necessary unless we do something about the way in which we plan infrastructure and the time that it takes. I mean, it's the time that everything takes. We've got seven years to get to 2030 and we've got to change the grid um, in a way which is enormously greater than anything we've done ever before uh, in a shorter period of time. Um, and we know that. I mean, there's no way we ever do that in any circumstance. So, but when was the first time that you made that recommendation? Well, um, I, I want to say before I say that is that one of the problems with people saying they want planning reform is that they then have a whole series of entirely contradictory <laughs> reforms that they want. So when I talk about planning reform, the first thing that I have been saying all the way through is that we need to have an overarching uh, statement in the Planning Act, and I've been saying that since we first had net zero as our aim, which would say that no planning permission should be considered or given or refused except in the context and recognition of the government's commitment on net zero. So that means that the smallest planning permission, people actually ask the questions about, are these houses fit for the future? Yeah, if you want to have 20 houses, you can have them, but you can't have them unless you've got proper means of uh, renewable energy to connect them that you've actually not going to think about just taking water from the grid and uh, not thinking about is there enough water. I mean, let's take that particular example. There is no reason at the moment why people take this into account. But if you take just one part of England, if you take uh, a part of the county of Suffolk, mm -hmm. the local water company has announced that it cannot connect any new commercial enterprise to the water grid till 2032. Now, it's no good. People can get planning permission until they're blue in the face, but if you can't actually connect with water, yet all that time in those years, we are building houses in Suffolk which have uh, not proper taps, so they've not got the sort of taps that use least water. They don't have uh, the sort of shower heads which use less water. They don't have a system whereby people can see how much water they are using. And we haven't got uh, what we should have, which is a mechanism for paying for water, which enables people to pay a reasonable low level for each member of the family. But once you're over that and you're talking about your swimming pool, 
or watering the garden, or don't you pay a very much tougher amount, which is what we should be doing, so that we use less. And we should be having compulsory water metering. I introduced compulsory water metering when I was Secretary of State. It was stopped. Labour Party stopped it on absolutely spurious grounds, which I remember particularly around what happened to a bus driver with six children. You cannot run the country on bus drivers for six children. You have to say, we have a system which works for everybody, and then we are going to help those who are particularly disadvantaged. I'm very much a social Tory, that's what I want to do. Do you find, saying you're a social Tory, do you think that you're still in step with where the Conservative Party is at the moment on these issues? Or do you feel that, regardless of what you said about the opposition failing to actually raise their game, the £28 billion green fund investment, even though that's been slightly watered down, that's still a greater commitment, isn't it, than than we're seeing from... Well, it is perfectly possible to make greater commitments um, in opposition, and I'm pleased with that commitment, of course. Um, The... The government is doing the things that, I mean, it it, it has set the targets, it has committed itself to it. That is true throughout the government. You listen to Grant Shapp's speech at the time of Biden's visit, for Mm -hmm. example. You could not complain about what the government is seeking to do and say. My issue, but it would be the same issue I'm quite sure of any government, is my issue is that it's delivery that counts and that's what's being measured. And the trouble is, in an odd way, governments think they're doing it. And I think, uh, because I've been around for such a long time, I, I always want to come back to the fact that governments are always better at policy than they are at delivery. It doesn't matter what, nothing about climate change, it's about anything else. It's always true. And this is a huge problem for politics. Um, and you mentioned the Planning Act. So I, there are a lot of other changes I want to see and need to see. I know we're going to have to have. Um, but again, the Planning Acts are supposed to be there to get a balance between what is needed nationally and what is uh, uh, and locally, um, and uh, what individuals or communities fear or don't want. Um, because we're a small island and uh, there's competition as to what should be used for each bit of land. So one has to accept the need for planning uh, laws. But my own view is that we are now moving to a situation in which we should be on war footing. We, 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 this is not something any longer which we can see in the context of other things. And that, I suppose, is my real concern about both political parties and indeed the Nationalists and the Liberal Democrats. The, the fact is, they're not yet on the war footing. What, what they are is a belief that if you play it softly, softly, somehow or other it'll all work out. It won't. That's the fact of the matter. And the witheringly hot summers which we're seeing the rest of Europe, and may well see ourselves, that's, uh, that's just telling us it won't work if we don't get there right on the front foot. Uh, I couldn't help but laugh at those who made comments about who knows all happening in the rest of Europe, as if it were Brexit that, that had actually done that. The truth of the matter is we are now at, uh, we are now at risk in a way which we have never been 
and we also know what we have to do. And I think you get back to a very, very fundamental human moral challenge. This is right back to, um, to the myth of Genesis. In the end, when she ate the apple, she knew, and therefore she was responsible. I mean, once you have understood, then you are responsible. When we had the Black Death and one in four of the people died, we weren't responsible because we didn't know how this thing spread. Now we do know, and therefore this is a challenge to humanity which uh, will make or break us, and at the moment it's breaking us. And I guess this is my point that I keep coming back to, is that we've known for some time. You've been saying this for quite some time. You've said this since you became chair of the CCC. you said it before you we were chair of the CCC. You said it <laughs> for many decades. Yeah, well, I mean, I just think I remind myself of the many years in which uh, people warned the government about the Nazis and the resurgence of German nationalism. And in the end, they had to come to terms with it. But people who knew that really uh, put it off. Yeah. But that's it's not just a fault of government or oppositions. That's our own personal lives. I mean, this is the this is the this is the history of humanity. We put things off. It's I think it's yeah. probably part of original sin. It's what we are like. And in that case, we went to a war footing just in time. Just in time. It could have been six months later, and it, and we, it would not have been possible. And so we are a just-in-time people. I mean, as a nation, but we're also just in time as a humanity, as a race. And, and that's what we have to accept. Do you think the time for nudges is over? That we're being too soft. We need. Well, as you get older, you begin to believe not in either or, but both and. I mean, I think there's a lot of nudging that can be done, but there are many things which just have to be decided on. I mean, I take I take a simple example because it is so obvious, and that is onshore wind has got to be encouraged rather than made almost impossible. It's a very simple thing. It's not a question of nudging. It just is saying, if people are prepared to have onshore wind, let's start there, they should have it. And, and then we should be making it easier. Uh, and one of the ways to make it easier is to make sure that the connection of the grid is possible and that you can sell it into the grid and that all the things that you can't do at the moment and you're really encouraging it, that's what you have to do. And if you think of it in that, like that, the nudges are still important to remind communities of how important mm -hmm. this is, all sorts of things you can do. And also, I think, a bit of uh, encouragement financially and uh, socially. I mean, um, I'm sure it's not the right word to use as bribery because that would be improper. But uh, I don't see why people who are bearing a bigger proportion of the cost of changing shouldn't get some advantage. So why not say that uh, if you've got an array of wind power, you should have rather cheaper electricity or something in the community would be paid for, uh, which wouldn't otherwise be paid for. Why not encourage people, not as a sort of bribe, although I sometimes tease thinking, but they've got that using the word, um, more, more as saying, um, if you bear the burden, then we will help you bear that burden. And that's what we ought to do.
So there we can have nudges. How about with the with the built environment? Oh, I'd be very much tougher about the built environment. I mean, the built environment is a question of setting proper standards and making people meet it. And that means uh, immediately introducing tougher building standards for homes. Uh, that wouldn't make for more expensive homes because the cost would come out of the cost of land. All that would happen would be that the price that uh, home builders would um, would pay for the land would fall. Now, the reason why they don't like it is because they've become land speculators. So they bought a lot of land, which they're not building on, but they bought it at a price which uh, is only sensible if you build crap houses, and, and that's the issue. And so we've built a million and a half houses over the last few years, um, which are not fit for the future, and where uh, how house builders have made a profit um, by putting the cost of retrofit onto the people who bought those houses, which is why I'm very radical about it. I would say very simply that every house builder who built houses, more than 100 houses over the last five years, should for each of those houses over the next five years contribute to a fund which would be available for the people who live in the houses which they have bought to draw upon in order to make the changes necessary to make those houses fit for the future. That's what we should be doing. Well, we should be much tougher about these things. And the precedent already exists, doesn't it, with, with Grenfell and the building? Well, absolutely. But it also exists because it's a better kind of windfall tax than other things that we have said. It's not a punishment in the sense that some people like windfall taxes because they think these people are making too much money. Um, I make no comment about that, except that one of those house builders, Per Simon, offered to its chief executive, what was originally a £140 million bonus. It dropped back after a bit, but the fact of the matter is that's what he'd offered, and uh, it showed very much that they had no idea about what the realities of world, the world are. And uh, the realities were that that money had come from the pockets of people who were now going to be charged. That's the serious issue. So we, we've really got to get responsibility back into, into the way that we, we handle this. Now, the government has to carry a lot of responsibility because it went back on its uh, homes uh, commitment in, in 2017, and that was a serious matter. But so does the house building companies. They knew perfectly well what they were doing, and most of them were ready to produce very much better houses. It's only one or two that actually put the pressure, and we now know that the pressure was not from the general house builders, but were from one or two, one of which was per seven. That's where the pressure came, and the government was foolish enough to give way. But they're giving away on other things as well, aren't they? I'm looking at um, the recent conversations happening about nutrient neutrality, which is possibly a sort of a fringe issue in the larger picture, but they're the priority to build, 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 to get more houses, to get closer to that 300,000 target, is taking priority over some fairly, some would say, fairly sensible and necessary environmental protections. Well, yes, but then we need to think about house building in a wholly different way, because it's not just that. It is that Every house builder, I've been the minister responsible after all, every house builder wants to build on a greenfield site because it's easier and you don't have the restrictions which you have if it's a brownfield site. So the government ought to say, you can't do that. It's very simple. There's, there's enough brownfield sites to be able to develop. In the end, that's what you want to do because you want to have cities. 
You don't want to have sprawling suburbs. There are two natural ways of living. One is in the country and the other is in the city. The city and civilization go together. They started at much the same time. So what you ought to be doing is making it possible for people to live close to each other and have the services close to them. And I know that there are those who've got sort of um, uh, peculiar... Uh, belief that somehow or other there is some plot to restrict them when you talk about the 20-minute city. But I'm a great believer in the concept that sitting here, I am enormously lucky because I live in a 20-minute city. I can get everything that I need within 20 minutes. I can walk in the park on the one hand, Mm -hmm. I can go to the doctors, I can go to the chiropodist, I can go to the hospital, I can go to the shops, I can do all those things and I can walk there. Now that is proper city living and we should be developing in that way and that's what, to do that of course government has to change the way in which it supports and the way in which it doesn't support. So support you need to make it easier to build this. That's partly planning, partly that's where you give the permission, partly you actually uh, make it cheaper for people to do that. So what they and have to pay the to the local authority. Yes, well. you ensure the infrastructure is there also. You, you make it cheaper for them because they don't have to contribute what they might otherwise have to contribute because they are already contributing by building in the in the way that we need them to do that. But there's a gulf as well, isn't there? Because we have, just last week, British Land and Land Securities, Land Sec, had a joint announcement, a joint report saying, we will be brownfield first. We, will, we want to develop communities, we want to develop more yeah. homes, we will only do it brownfield, we need the government to do this. That's the wrong way round, isn't it? To have well, leading sure. developers... Knocking on the government's no, well, I'm a conservative, so I rather like it when it happens <laughs> that way round. Because I think in the end we can't do these things without uh, without the effect of, uh, of of the market. And mm. the reason they're doing this is that the market is increasingly telling them to do it. I mean, they understand that. But remember who it is. It's the big big people who have very often. Um, a much wider view of what uh, needs to be done and a longer term and a longer term view and i'm afraid the house building fraternity have a long history of getting it wrong and and what they do is they say that's not what people want actually business is about seeing what you can help people to want it's about finding the new things i once went to a uh, ideal home exhibition I remember many years ago and they had um, uh, one of these constructions to show the five different sorts of uh, uh, houses which had been built and they thought it was wonderful because they showed the changes actually didn't show anything at all about that they built exactly the same the change was practically nil Um, and the, the idea that they were using different techniques the idea that they would be building off-site, the idea that, that uh, they had changed the inside for the difference in people's work lives and the rest of it. I mean, it just wasn't there. You, they revealed to you that, 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 that this was an industry which really didn't think of the future in an effective way. So I think, um, I think we must be pushed by 
the market and pushed by government. Both sides should be doing it. If I were to wave a, a magic wand, I don't have one, sadly, yeah. but if we were to, to give you your old office back. In fact, actually, there's a, there's a question in that as well. Planning is no longer part of the, the environment department. Should it be? Well, I, I think there should be a land use department, which would um, uh, include agriculture, so that it would be uh, responsible for the nation's use of its land, and it would be the planning department, and it would not be the same as the local government department or the housing department. It would be about the planning of the use of the land. And we've just got to realise that that is at the heart of the changes we need to make. This very interesting report has been produced in the last fortnight, very distinguished report, which shows that if the whole world went to regenerative farming, we would be able to have soil which would actually sequestrate all the emissions we make. And I want to make this really seriously but of course the whole world isn't going to go to regenerative farming so we can't just do that because it's not going to happen we've got to do again both and rather than either or but it just reminds us how important is the net bit of net zero because what has happened is that we have to reduce our emissions because we have wildly overdone what we emit but we also have damaged the abilities of the planet to sequestrate. We have filled the ocean with plastic. We have removed the kelp and the uh, seagrass, which was so important. We are still allowing bottom trawling. What on earth is the government doing? Actually allowing people to destroy the food cycle, to cut into the bottoms of the sea and therefore release the CO2 and not enable that to go on sequestrating. So we're doing all those things. Reversing that is just as important a part as bringing down the emissions. And it's that that we have to concentrate on particularly. And that's why we need a Department of Land Use. And I've been campaigning for that for 20 years, but there we are. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you that role. Right. You're now the Secretary of State for the Department of Land Use. You also have planning powers, and even though you said it should be separate, I'm going to give you uh, authority over housing as well, um, <laughs> and of course commercial development. Yeah. So, well done. Uh, congratulations on the new role. Um, what are the things that need to happen right now? What would, you, what would you be wanting to do, and how difficult would it be to get it done? Well, first of all, I'd be making those changes necessary in the infrastructure uh, part of the Planning Act. I'd, I'd have to have, we'd have to have uh, much speedier means of getting the infrastructure we need, getting the uh, uh, the grid lines that we need. Uh, secondly, I'd be removing the present structure on the base which uh, under which National Grid has to operate, because at the moment it has to produce the cheapest answer to anything, and that is unacceptable. It has to produce the best answer, and it, you can only do that if you allow it to do that. And of course, it will be cheaper because uh, the fact is that uh, under any planning laws, if you try to do things in a way which is really upsetting to the public, they will find ways of making it longer and longer for you to do it, and that's what we've got to get rid of. So. You, You'd have, to, you'd have to have 
for example, the thing I keep on going about, it must be more sensible to have a single line all the way around the east coast of England into which the offshore wind go, offshore wind generating electricity goes, and it comes on, line, on land at Bradwell, where we've already got the overhead lines. It was a nuclear power station. It's not running now. We could use that without any difficulty. They say it's more expensive. I'm not sure that's true, but anyway, you release them for that, they do the thing that is most sensible. You start making some sensible decisions, and that's one of them. So you would you would so do that. Is the mechanism there to, to prioritise the net zeros? Say, instead of, um, it's not value for money, is it? It's cheapness. Instead of prioritising cheapness, you have to say, okay, you're prioritising something else, and then... And then you have to, and then you have to remove some of the old-fashioned links, limits on it. For example, there's an old-fashioned limit that says that uh, each array has to link into the main system on its own, and it can't yes. cooperate. And a series of things you can do. So I do a, that's my first series of things. I do. Secondly, um, I would be making it absolutely clear that you wouldn't get planning permission for any house or any building that didn't meet the net zero requirements. And you'd start right from there and you No exceptions. No, no exceptions no and you wouldn't put it off either. You'd say from now on. So anything that is not anything that is not so far done that you can't make the changes. So if you've got just a few bricks in the ground, you don't get away with it. You actually have to then build exactly as I'm saying. You have to do that. And other, so even those who have started, they've broken ground, they've started yeah, works. They would still have to, yeah. they, would have, they would have to appeal uh, that they had got so far that they couldn't make the changes. Very, very rare to have got that far, that that's what you do. Now, in addition, what you would do would be, of course, to um, change the way we do building regulations. Because at the moment, they're far too prescriptive. They shouldn't be prescriptive. What they should do is to say, this is the outcome we want. We don't care whether the outcome is delivered by pirouetting on your, on your toes. If, if if you've got a new way of doing it and it's safe, you could have have safety rules. But apart from that, you could do it that way. You, the, the, you've got to get you've got to get the industry, the construction industry, onto an innovative uh, attitude. So I would be extremely keen on doing that. And this is the thing that's held us back from using innovative materials, isn't it? Like well, of course, things. yes. And and uh, it's why. You know, we've got a ridiculous policy of planting an awful lot of trees, but no uh, policy of, of creating a, uh, a, a forestry industry. Mm. So we can't use what the trees produce to lock up that carbon permanently in buildings, for example. Mm. We can't do that. And, we, and indeed, since Grenfell, we've made the mistake of thinking that the use of wood is a dangerous thing, and that's not true. Exactly the reverse. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Any other things that you, you're going to add as, as in your new role as, as Secretary of State? <laughs> well, I would be absolutely clear that we have to do everything in a regenerative way. So encouragement for regeneration in every sense, but land regeneration. Uh, I mean, a very simple thing that we should be doing is that we should be... Um, having a different system for using sewage sludge, which we put on the land. Uh, very high safety levels, of course, but we should be enabling people to sell 
the uh, what is a soil improver and uh, and fertilizer um, in a much more sensible way. So uh, you could buy if you wanted to um, sewage sludge which doesn't have uh, nitrates in it. Yes. So you could then put that on in a nitrate sensitive area instead of having just damn silly rules which say you can't put anything on the land at any t of any kind for a large period of the year because the Environment Agency doesn't have the money properly to regulate this. And so without going into lots of other things that I do, I would absolutely, essentially increase the funding of the Environment Agency to make it an effective regulator which it isn't at the moment because its funding has been cut so much that it can't regulate. And they're the essential regulator of land use. And with land use in mind, I mean, you need more funding for that as well, wouldn't you? You need to fund planning better? You need. Well, I mean, uh, I don't think you need fund the planning more. You, because what I'm suggesting is that you have clearer planning arrangements and people make the same number of people making the decisions and get on with it. That's the, that's the only thing, and it's a rather simpler way of doing it too, because they, they, they know where they start and end. If it's outcomes as opposed to Absolutely. details going into it. Yeah. That's, that's your latest role, your imaginary role that we've given you. How about when you were Environment Secretary? Do you have anything that you look back and think, okay, that I'm incredibly proud of that as an achievement. Is there anything, conversely, that you look back and think, if only? Well, I'm proud of the Wildlife and Countryside Act. Um, I'm proud of the invention of the um, Environment Agency. Um, I'm proud of the giving planning permission against everybody's uh, advice for the London Eye. <laughs> uh, there are lots of things like that. I'm proud of protecting all the wharves and uh, all the piers and points of, uh, on the River Thames, which would otherwise all have been developed and we wouldn't be able to do on the river, which what we're now able to do. So there are whole range of things like that. Um, what was one sad about? Um, I did do a lot about out-of-town shopping, making it much more difficult. I think I ought to have done more about the planning system. We did some, but we could have done more. And I ought to have done it in a way which stuck because the problem was that although I made the decisions which were increasingly uh, about brownfield sites, about building in cities, um, the planning system itself was not proof against ministers who didn't think that way. And how about climate change? How about net zero? Well, we were the first people to do anything about this. I mean, I remember in the Ministry of Agriculture when I was the Deputy Minister, when I was Minister of State, um, changing the rules about sea protection on the basis of climate change, which was unique. Mrs Thatcher once said to me, there are two people in this government who believe in global warming, you and me. She then paused and said, we are therefore a majority. <laughs> John Gummer, Lord Deben, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you.